And when you look at the news, I think that you will see some things like a political leader who a lot of the people under his leadership despise. A leader who the people who are under his leadership believe is evil and can't wait until the day he's no longer in that position anymore. I think when you look at the news, you'll see people that have been entrusted with power and weaponry and authority responsible for enforcing the law who use that power to take the lives of innocent people. In the news, we're going to see that there's people in a nation who look around at all these bad things that are happening around them and can't wait for the day when a leader will rise up and restore their nation to the spiritual foundation upon which it was built. And other people within that same nation who look around and see all this injustice going on and say, you know what we need to do? We need to, we need to do anything possible, including using, using violence, to overthrow the perpetrators of those who are doing wrong. In other places in the news, we see stories of tragic accidents. We see people who get up in the morning, get ready for work, and head off, thinking about the evening or looking forward to the weekend, who have an unexpected accident happen to them, and they never return home again, leaving their family behind to wonder why. And of course, when you look at the news, there's always that question of, whose fault is it? Who is to blame? For the bad stuff that happens. Maybe it's the leader's fault. Maybe they should have done more. Or maybe it's the government's fault. They're not doing their job. Or maybe it's the person to whom the bad thing happened. They kind of deserved it. And, and, and if we're handing out blame, we've always got to consider, what about God? Maybe he shouldn't get off without some of the blame thrown his way. So this morning, we're going to be looking through the lens of Scripture at some news. But before you get too offended or too excited about what's going to be going on this morning, I, I probably should let you know that the news that we're going to be looking at isn't current news. It isn't American news. And even though it might sound like something that you read in the newspaper or online or saw on, on the TV this week, it's actually news that happened about 6,000 years ago, or 2,000 years ago in a place 6,000 miles from here. But the good news is this. If you're a person who thinks that Jesus' opinion on the news should at least be considered, then when this news broke, Jesus was around. And someone had the smarts to ask him for his take. And so this week we're going to be in Luke chapter 13, if you want to make your way there in our Bibles. And we're going to look at what happened when there was some breaking news. Luke chapter 13, and here, here's what was going on that day. Jesus was hanging out with some of his friends, just spending some time together. And someone came up to him with a newspaper. Or, or maybe since this is 2020, I should ask the question, who, who here lives in a household that still even gets a physical newspaper? Quick show of hands. Okay, so let's change it up a little bit for some of those who don't get the newspaper. Someone walks up to Jesus with a phone with a Twitter notification with some breaking news. And this is what happened. There was a terrible event that took place. And someone comes up to Jesus and he says, this terrible thing happened. Which leads to an obvious question that Jesus raises. And then he gives an unexpected answer. Now to kind of give you an idea of how we're going to work through this today, there's actually two terrible events in Luke chapter 13. They both raise the same obvious question 
And Jesus gives the same unexpected answer to both. So if you're trying to follow along in sequential order, you're going to be a little bit frustrated because we're going to actually look at both events together. Then we're going to look at the obvious questions. Then we're going to look at the unexpected answers. So what was this event that took place? Luke records that now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about breaking news. The Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices... There was a tragedy going on that everyone was talking about. And people wanted to know, what did Jesus think about it? Where Jesus lived and taught was a place called Israel. And Israel had been taken over by the Roman Empire. They were living under enemy occupation. And the Romans came in and they put a governor in charge named Pilate. The people of Israel generally thought Pilate was an evil, evil person. They despised him. And they had good cause because Luke records that there was this incident where Pilate had mixed blood of Galileans with their sacrifices. We don't know exactly what happened in the story, but implied is that for some unstated reason, or maybe just out of cruelty, Pilate had killed some Galileans. What's interesting is that Jesus is there that day, and Jesus was actually from Galilee. So it's quite possible that those who were killed were some of his buddies from growing up. Maybe they hung out together at synagogue or or played in the streets of the village. And Pilate had done this horrible thing. He apparently had had some people killed. Now if Pilate, if that name rings a bell, you might remember that name from the story of Jesus' crucifixion. John tells us that the day Jesus died, he actually went before Pilate because Pilate wanted to talk to him. And in the course of that conversation, Pilate realized that Jesus had done nothing wrong at all. That he was innocent. And yet Pilate allowed Jesus to be carried away to be killed anyhow. And just like in the story of Jesus' crucifixion, Pilate had used Roman soldiers, probably the same that had happened in this tragic incident, to carry out the evil doing. So you had these these soldiers who had given them the strength and the weaponry and the authority to protect people who were innocent, using that power to take the lives of the innocent. And then on top of it, Pilate mixes their blood with their sacrifice. It, 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 It was to be religiously offensive to the people. Not only was this wrong, but it was sort of a way of rubbing it in and saying, I can do this and you can't stop me. To to kind of give us a sense of of the offense that this would have caused, I just want you to imagine, imagine this. Imagine that you heard today about a church nearby where this very morning federal agents came in during a church service and shut things down. They arrest the pastor and put him in jail. They send everybody home and lock the doors. They freeze all the assets of the church, and and just because they knew it would be particularly offensive, they make a big pile of Bibles in the parking lot, and as people leave, they make them watch their Bibles being burned. We would look at that, and we would say, that is pure evil. And that's what the people that were coming to Jesus were saying. This is pure evil. A terrible thing had happened. And they realized what we probably realized from some of the things that happen in our lives is that sometimes bad things happen because evil people do evil things. 
Maybe you've looked around at some of the actual stories in our news of the evil that's taking place in the world. It's not hard to find stories of people who shoot each other. People who steal from each other. People who constantly lie for their own gain. You look around the world, you see the bad things happen. No one would deny that. Many times because evil people do evil things. Now when you look at our world though, there's another reason that bad things happen. And Jesus points to it in verse 4 when he says this. He says, what about this? There were those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Now realize he's talking about current news, so everybody there knows what's going on. Just like if we said today, the pandemic, everyone knows we're talking about coronavirus, not 1919 or like the swine or the bird flu or whatever flu was in Black Death in, in, in the 1500s. They knew what was going on, and what was apparently happening was some people had gone to work one day to work on a tower, and it fell over and killed them. And Jesus is pointing out the fact that bad things also happen in our world because our world is broken. We live in a world where things go wrong. People become victims of accidents or acts of nature. On a worldwide scale, we know this is true. Every year this time, there's hurricanes that destroy communities. We read stories of earthquakes that level towns. Pandemics spread across the world. Our world is broken. And because of that, bad things sometimes happen. But not just that, not just on a worldwide scale. We know this in our own lives. We've been to funerals. For people who perished in car accidents. We have friends and some of us have even gotten cancer diagnosis. We know stories of people who seem perfectly fine and their hearts stopped beating. We know people who left for work or for school or for the store and just never came home. Things in our world go wrong. Bad things happen because our world is broken. It doesn't work right. Now, I'd be willing to venture a guess. I don't claim to know you, but I, I, I think that this is probably true for most people here. Two things. The first is this. In your life, you have had both pilot Galilean moments and you've had Tower of Siloam moments. You've had things that have happened in your life, bad things, because evil people have done evil things that you've been affected by. And you've had bad things that have happened in your life because accidents happen. Specific things might even come to mind right now. You might have even walked in the door this morning, and even as we were worshiping or through the prayer, these things were coming up in your mind, and you were even praying, God, God, help me in this situation in my life. You've experienced this. This might have happened 2,000 years ago, but you've had similar things in your life where you looked and you'd said, that's just bad, and you've been on the receiving end of that experience. And here's the second thing I think I'd be willing to venture a guess about you. The, the fact that you've shown up at a church on a Sunday morning to hear a sermon or that you're watching online or listening in the car to this message means that even if you don't buy all of it, you have at least an openness to the idea that there's a spiritual side of life and that possibly Jesus and God have something to do with it. And so, whether or not you've committed your life to Jesus yet or not, you have probably wrestled with this spiritual question. Why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen? And what does God do about it? 
The, the people that were there that day with Jesus, they were wrestling with this very same thing. What Pilate had done was outrageous. And they were outraged. And they were coming to Jesus because they expected him to be outraged too. But we have to realize that in this story, this isn't like an FYI. They weren't just saying, hey, Jesus, just want to make sure you had heard about this. They were coming to him intentionally because there were rumors circulating about Jesus. The word on the street was that Jesus might be the expected Messiah. And that Messiah, if it was Jesus, included the expectation that he would raise up an army to forcefully overthrow these illegitimate foreign invaders once and for all. And so they're bringing this story to Jesus saying, what are you going to do about it? If you are God, what are you going to do? And maybe you've wondered that question before to God as well. Maybe in prayer, you've uttered out, God, what are you going to do? Jesus is never one to be afraid of a hard question. Here's his response to both of these stories. It's the same in both cases. He answers them. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no. Or do you think that those 18 who died when that tower fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Nope, that's not the case. Jesus points to the question that is raised by these incidents. He says, why do these bad things happen? Now in his response, he's pushing against their culture's explanation of bad things. See, in the first century, in, in that culture, when something bad happened, everyone just assumed that whoever was the victim of the bad thing had done a bad thing themselves. So for instance, if, if somebody was born blind... People in the culture would have assumed, without even thinking about it, that that person's parent, they, they just, they, they must have some secret sin. I can't imagine what they're hiding. What do you think it is? The assumption was that bad things happen to people because people are hiding sin. And the bad thing is a result of that. It sounds really awful to us, doesn't it? That's terrible. We, would, we wouldn't imagine doing that. If, 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 you, had, if you had in the car accident today, my thought wouldn't be, wow, man, what... What did they do between church and, that, and driving home that caused that accident? We couldn't imagine doing that. But in our culture, we have an automatic assumption that people in Jesus' culture also couldn't imagine. You see, when something bad happens in our culture, instead of assuming that it happened because that person must be bad, we assume it happens because, well, God must, God must be bad. It's not something wrong with the person. There must, be, there must be something wrong with God. God must not be good. Or at least not good enough to care about this. Or, or maybe he's not powerful. Or at least not powerful enough to do something about it. That's what we assume. And for many, that assumption has led them to walk away from their faith. Or never embrace faith in the first place. And here in this story, 
Jesus has the perfect opportunity to settle it for us and for them. See, these people were coming to him because they were hurting. They were in pain. They were questioning. They were looking at their assumptions about people and evil and God and saying, maybe we don't have it all figured out. And they're turning to the right place. They're going to God himself. They're turning to Jesus. And so they're thinking, Jesus, help us to understand why do bad things happen and what does God do about it? And it leaves us wondering, what's Jesus going to say? I mean, here's his chance. Here's his chance. He can defend the goodness and the powerfulness of his father. He, he can take those really hard questions about the bad things that happen in life and explain how God can be good and powerful in the mix of it. And they're hanging on Jesus' words thinking, what's he going to say? Finally, we're going to get the answer. He's going to help us figure it out. And here's what Jesus said. Unless you repent, you will perish too. What? What does this have to do with why bad things happen and what God is doing about it. And in case you were wondering, well, maybe they copied and pasted the wrong verse up on the screen this morning. Jesus likes what he said about this so much that he just quotes himself two verses later when answering the question about the tower. He says the same thing again. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. Not only does this really disappoint us when trying to answer the question, Jesus isn't even nice. Like, Isaiah calls him the wonderful counselor, but he could have at least said, well, I'm giving you my thoughts and my prayers. I mean, could you imagine this, right? So, so the people he's talking to, there's this pilot guy, this governor. They hate him for good reason. He's killing their friends. It's evil and heinous and awful. And they come to Jesus about it because, well, they're kind of figuring out that he just might be God. And Jesus says to them, I don't want to talk about, everyone knows Pilate's evil. Did you know you're evil too? Like, what kind of answer is that? They would have been super offended. I mean, even here, right? So we live in kind of a, we like to consider ourselves pretty tolerant, non-judgmental 21st century Westerners. I mean, look at this. Like, this just seems judgmental and harsh to me. These people's hearts are breaking. And Jesus says, oh, you better repent too or you're going to perish. This isn't the inoffensive, non-judgmental Jesus we sometimes think we're dealing with. This is not the answer I would have expected. But, but, but I've learned this. And you can apply this principle to any time you're reading the accounts of Jesus' life. See, we should pay the most attention when Jesus responds the way we least expect. When Jesus seems to throw a curveball when it's a fastball count, we should pay attention. Because he's trying to make a point. Jesus never did anything by accident. He never wasted a word. He was the most intentional person who ever lived. So when we look at his response, repent or you too will perish. And we push back maybe some of the offendedness. Or some of the hard questions we might raise about the realities of life. Or, or, or just some of the thinking he seems judgmental. And we get underneath that and we say, what point is he really trying to make here? I think we see this. Jesus is saying to them and to us, the realities of this life point to the reality of your life. He's saying this. 
when you look around your life and you see these bad things happen, there's a higher reality in your own life that it points to. These people came to him with these problems, and they wanted him to use his power and his authority to change some of the realities of their life. And we do that too, right? Whether you follow Jesus or not, there's a good chance at some point in life you've prayed. And you've probably asked God to change something about something you're dealing with in your life. And often we go to God with the realities of our life because he tells us to, but we have this expectation that he's always going to use his power and authority to change these realities, to make the hard things, the evil things of this life a little bit easier, a little bit less bad. And Jesus is saying to them, look, These bad things point to a bigger reality. And the reality is that whether you die at the hand of an evil perpetrator like Pilate, or as a tragic victim of an accident like this tower, or whether you die one day in the comfort of your own bed, the ultimate reality, the capital R reality of your life is that one day you will die. Don't know when it will be. Could be many years from now. Could be tomorrow. But one day, you will not be the person hearing the bad news. You will be the topic of the bad news. One day, it's going to be, did you hear, did you hear about Joe? Did you, did you hear about Aaron? Did, did you hear about Chris? Tragic. So sad. Too soon. And every moment that you've been here today, every second that's happened this morning has been one second closer to the moment that you die. Every breath that you've taken has been one breath less of the number of breaths allotted to you for your life. Every heartbeat that your heart has beaten has been one heartbeat closer to your final heartbeat. And and being offended about it won't change it. Thinking it's unfair won't change it. Throwing up hard questions about life in the face of it won't change it. Fearing it and delaying it won't change it. You can't even change religions. You can't even get rid of religion. Because there's no religion or non-religion that denies that one day each one of us will die. And, And I know, you're sitting there, you're like, this is super depressing. Why did I come today? Why am I, this church is supposed to be super uplifting. That's what they told me. I can't believe I showed up. That's what they talk about every week. And, and maybe you're thinking, okay, how much, okay, I can hang in there 16 more minutes. Or you're watching online and you're like, okay, what's that other church talking about this morning? Here, here's what I want you to know. If, if what we believe that this book says about Jesus is true, then Jesus didn't come into our world to talk about only comfortable and easy issues. God didn't go through the trouble of sending his son into the world for comfortable conversations. Jesus came into our world because it was necessary for him to deal with the most serious issues that we face. And what is more serious of an issue than your guaranteed death one day? But he didn't come because he wanted to spread depression. He didn't come because he wanted to raise fear and worry in our lives. He came because he wanted to raise this serious issue because he was the only one 
who can offer a capital R or capital H hope to our capital R reality. That's why he came. And as we continue on in the story into Luke chapter 13, verse 6, we'll see that he conveys this hope through a story with an eternal point called a parable. This is what Jesus says as we listen back in. He told them this parable. A man had a fig tree. It was growing in this vineyard he had, and he went to look for fruit on it, but he didn't find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this tree, and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? But sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it, and if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Jesus told his hearers a story that their culture would have understood to help, them to exp- help him explain to them what he had been talking about in the previous five verses. Now, if you're like me, you just learned today that, imagine that, figs grow on trees. I never even, before, to, before this story, wondered, where do figs come from? I never ate a fig newt and thought, how do they make, like, what, how does this work? So, I want to give you maybe a, a little bit more modern version that might help us to understand this story a little bit more. Uh, even though our culture doesn't know particularly a lot about fig trees or vineyards, something our culture is really passionate about is sports. So, let me give you this analogy. Let's imagine that we were all fans of an NFL football team, passionate fans. And the owner of that team, one year, goes out and drafts a highly touted, promising young quarterback. Everyone in the town's excited. We're finally going to get back to our winning ways. This is going to be great. We all grew up watching these old video clips from like the 1970s, let's say, and, and about winning Super Bowls. And we're like, it's going to happen again. And all of our hopes are placed in this young quarterback. But then, the quarterback struggles. Doesn't live up to the expectations. Has many, many losing seasons. So finally, after yet another losing season, the owner goes to the coach and says, this guy's killing us. He's hurting us more than he's helping us. I mean, he's throwing way more interceptions than touchdowns. He's, he's losing us games. We're losing way more games than we're winning. We're losing money. Fans quit coming to the games. They're burning effigies of him out there. Like, this, we got, we got to do, it's not safe for him anymore. This town's going to kill him. And the coach says to the owner, I know, it's been bad, but I still have hope. I watched the film from college. He has potential. Let's give it one more year. One more year. We'll get in some extra training, and we'll bring in a special coach. One more year. And look, if it doesn't work out, then I guess we will have to let him go. Now, if this was your football team that you were passionate about, and you had endured all the losing, how would you feel? You wouldn't look at the owner and the coach as being harsh and mean for wanting to cut this lousy quarterback. You would think they were stupid and foolish and way too forgiving. Because it would only take the most merciful and graceful and patient owner that you could possibly imagine who would want to keep around a quarterback who is inept, who was costing him money, who was making his fan base mad. And only a selfless coach who is absolutely confident in his relationship with the owner would put his own neck on the line for a quarterback who was just doing nothing but losing him games. 
And Jesus' listeners were looking at this story thinking similar thoughts. They knew all about vineyards and trees. They were passionate about them. They thought, why on earth would an owner keep a clearly failed tree in his garden anymore? I mean, what we don't know, but what they knew is that fig trees don't even bear fruit for the first three years that they were planted. And then because of the religious laws, they weren't even allowed to go looking for fruit for the uh, fourth, fifth, and sixth year. So the first year he would have even gone expecting to get some fruit would have been year seven. And he says he's been looking for it for three years. That tree's been sitting in that garden taking up space for nine, how many, I don't even have enough fingers, a lot, nine years. It was clearly a disaster. And the people would have been thinking, why is this, why is this, proper, why is this gardener sticking up for this tree? I mean, this, this owner's going to fire him if this doesn't work out. I just cut it down. He must be the most optimistic, patient, merciful guy I could imagine. And that's Jesus' point. This story isn't a story about a harsh owner of a vineyard and a harsh gardener who just want to chop down every tree the first chance they can get. It's a story of grace and mercy and patience and numerous opportunities. Because Jesus is trying to teach them and to teach us that Jesus gives numerous, but not innumerable, opportunities to turn to him. Jesus is communicating that that he came into this world because he wants to give us many, but not unlimited, chances to turn to him. And that's the hope that he's trying to bring to them. He's saying these realities of life, these bad things that you see happening in your world, they let you know that you're not guaranteed tomorrow. Your, your opportunities to turn, they're not innumerable. It could happen to you. But today, you have today, you're not guaranteed tomorrow, but today you have a chance, you have an opportunity to turn to Jesus. Really, when he says repent, that's what it means. Repentance means to have a change of heart direction. It's an opportunity to change where you're going. What direction is your heart going in? Maybe, maybe you've allowed all the things that are going in the world, the tragedies in the news, to kind of turn your heart to fear and to worry. The election, the pandemic, the, the, the unrest in our society have caused you to feel like you're out of control. And you are. But you have the opportunity to turn your heart to one who is always in control. Jesus is saying, you want peace? Turn to me. You want freedom? Turn to me. You, know what it mean? you want to know what it means to have the anxiety and worry gone? Turn to me. Or maybe, maybe your heart, you've, you've allowed your heart to lead you in whatever direction it wants to take you. Did you know, did you know your heart will lie to you? Your heart will tell you things that aren't true. It'll tell you, look, you can find happiness in a relationship outside of your marriage. It'll be happier if you just try that. It'll tell you that there's comfort to be found in images on a screen. It'll tell you that the next project or the next purchase will bring you fulfillment. Your heart will whisper deceptive little phrases in your ear that start with things like, you deserve, you're owed, you're entitled to. Your heart It'll tell you what you want to hear to lead you to destruction, but Jesus came to tell you what you need to hear to 
to lead you to life. And today is an opportunity to change the direction of your heart. Away from your pride, away from your sin, away from your unselfishness, and turn it to Jesus. Or, or maybe you're here today and you would say, you know what, it's really been the hard questions of life that have kind of turned my heart. I've explored faith, but, but I, just, I just can't get past this idea of evil. And, and really, just being honest with you, Joe, since you don't know what I'm thinking, but I can think it, I'm thinking, Joe, you didn't even answer the question, did you? Well, really, Jesus didn't, did he? He had this opportunity to settle it, and he didn't even answer it. And in one sense, you're right. But that wasn't the point he was trying to make. In the absence of, of giving us an answer, I think Jesus gave us something better. You see, where we go to hard questions and we want proof, Jesus gave us something different. Instead of offering philosophical proofs, Jesus offered his physical presence. This is, this is what Jesus did. He said, I'm not going to explain it. I'm going to solve it. I'm not going to lecture. I'm going to act. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm going to do something about evil. And so Jesus physically came into our world with this message. Repent. Turn your heart. And believe the good news. And this is the good news. This is the message of the gospel. Is that God said, do you want to know if I exist? Have you ever questioned God? Are you out there? God said, I've heard you. And I will send my son Jesus physically, in flesh and blood, into your world to show you that I am real. And when we cry out, God, are you good? God said, I am. I am so good that I will allow my son Jesus, the only one who is ever truly good, to become the victim of the most tragic news story in history. Being murdered on a cross, the good one taking our place for the evil that we have committed against God. That's how good God is. And when we cry out, God, do you really have power to do anything? God says, I'll show you my power when after three days I raised my son from the dead. Overcoming the realities of this life and proving that evil doesn't win. And hopelessness doesn't win. And pain doesn't win. Sin doesn't win. Satan doesn't win. And death doesn't win. And in his goodness and his power through Jesus Christ, God offers to us the ultimate reality. Reality of life in him. Eternal life and eternal hope. Eternal relationship and eternal peace with God. And through that, God proves to us and all of humanity his true power and his true goodness. And he gives us opportunities to receive it. Today is an opportunity, but the choice is yours. I ask you to just bow your heads with me, please. And I want to give you that opportunity. Maybe God's speaking to your heart today, and he's, he's saying to you, I'm calling you to turn to me. Turn your heart to me. If you would like to do that, I just want to, you, you can follow me along, along with me in a prayer. 
can just pray these words. It's not the magic of the words. It's just expressing your heart, but, but sometimes helps just to say it. You can pray along with me. Jesus, I give you my heart. I turn from the sin in my life. Thank you for breaking into this world physically, dying on the cross to offer me forgiveness. I receive that forgiveness, and today I give you my life. I'm turning to you. You might be here today, and, and, and the Lord's working on your heart saying, you know, I've given my heart to Jesus before, but there's some areas in my life where I'm not living like I am, or, or living like I've given him my heart. You need to repent. And Jesus is telling you, you have some things to deal with. Listen to what he's saying to you. Where you're sitting, ask him for his forgiveness. Maybe you need to have a conversation. Maybe you need to reverse a decision. Maybe you need to confess some things to someone. What's he calling you to do? God, we just come before you as we close today, and we thank you so much for this good news of Jesus Christ. We pray, God, that through this body of believers, that you will take this good news into our community as we leave today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hey, if you prayed with me to turn your heart, to give it to Jesus, to follow him, would you come up and just let us, let us know? One of our pastors, one of our elders will be up front after the service. We'd love to pray with you and just encourage you. Also, just want to invite you as you're leaving, uh, head out to the lobby. We have a team of people that are going to be coming in to clean some of the spaces. So enjoy fellowship with each other out in the lobby, but just give them that room to come in and clean for the next service. Thank you so much for coming and worshiping with us today. We will see you next week.